Elliot Goldstein is hosting a radio and podcast show out of New Mexico called NMDJ Presents Fly on the Wall. We are building a fresh, fabulous podcast library of musicians, writers, artists, and all good people of note, with many new and exciting guests to come. We are listener-funded. If you would like to assist our Venmo info is New Mexico DJ service. The PayPal info is New Mexico DJ service at gmail.com. We appreciate your help. We would like to thank Alan Gower for the intro music. Enjoyed the show. Hey guys, thank you for listening to Fly on the Wall podcast. I'd like to tell you how I got started. Um, I really had no idea on um, the beginnings of what had even where to start. And I stumbled upon Anchor by Spotify. And it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. And I'll explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And um, when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast automatically on listening platforms. I'm on Spotify. I'm on Apple Podcasts. I'm on other uh, platforms. And it, Anchor made it so simple. And um, it's all in one place. Everything you need to make a podcast, you can find in one place. And um, the amazing part is it's all free. So um, there is no uh, downside to any of this. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R. And again, it's the Anchor app or go anchor.fm. And it's real easy to get started. And um, thank you for listening to Fly on the Wall and uh, back to the show. Only Wendy's serves a better breakfast with a better biscuit. Our hot buttery breakfast biscuits are loaded with a fresh cracked egg, cheese, and your choice of bacon or sausage. Did we mention the part where Wendy's biscuits are hot and buttery? Wendy's breakfast biscuits, hot and buttery. So don't take a chance with those other guys. Bet on a better breakfast with Wendy's bacon or sausage egg and cheese biscuit. Choose wisely. Choose Wendy's. At participating U.S. Wendy's during breakfast hours. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a lounge singer to be their office receptionist. Hello, this is Mickey Marquis, and you've reached the office of Doug and Associates. <laughs> Thank you very much. Catch me Tuesday nights at the Hotel Johnson. Hello? But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Doug and Associates, this is Mickey Marquis. Hello? For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today. Not Your Mother's Radio is listener funded. If you wish to assist and help keep the station active, funds can be sent via PayPal to Elliot. Is. Not. Your. Mother. At. Gmail.com. Remember, there is only one L and one T in Elliot. Thank you for your assistance. It is appreciated. The topic of this podcast is about the one and only Joel Selvin the Mickey Spillane of rock journalism. Joel is an American San Francisco-based music critic and author known for his weekly column in the San Francisco Chronicle, which ran from 1972 to 2009. Selvin has written books covering various aspects of pop music, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Red, My Uncensored Life in Rock with Sammy Hagar. He has also interviewed many musical artists. 
Selvin has published articles in Rolling Stone, The Los Angeles Times, Billboard, and Melody Maker, and has written liner notes for dozens of recorded albums. He has appeared in documentaries about the music scene and has occasionally taken the stage himself as a rock and roll singer. So let's break into and listen to Joel, Jim and Elliot as they chat it up. Hope you enjoy the show. Why uh, wanted to do a book? I, I, I said, come on, you got to be kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, before I forget, Bob, Bob Sarlis sends his regards. Bob says hi. Bob's, Bob and I are in almost daily touch again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob said you're a great guy. and um, We've got a Dino Valenti movie. Yes, he discussed that. Yep. And how's that coming about? That that doing well? Uh, well, I'm, uh, uh, as Bob would say, I'm coin-operated. Uh-huh. I've got a little bit of a work queue. Everything is sitting there piled up on my desktop, and as soon as the check arrives, I'll open the file. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That, that's a great, uh, that, that's a great way to go to look at it. Wow. Okay. Cool. I have another book coming so, out uh, next month, and when I, and when I get that check, I'll never think of the book again. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you're, that's, I, I loved, I loved your Altamont book, by the way. Is Thank that, you. I like that, that one too. Yeah, I love the Altamont book. Yeah, and, uh, I did. Yeah, brilliant, 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 brilliant stuff. Uh, um, I would like to say that that story told itself, but of course it didn't. You want to huh? start off, Noel? I beg your pardon, Jim. I just um, yeah. I just said what a what a horrific story it was. I loved it. Yeah, I loved yeah, the book. yeah. yeah. It, it, it was it's really a. I and had the advantage. The question asked was, is Eden the next book? Uh, uh, well, is it, they're all connected in my mind. Uh, and, and oddly enough, the, 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 the seeds of Hollywood Eden are in Here Comes the Night. Oh, really? Very much so. Okay. Uh, oh, right. Okay. Did you? Although, uh, although there's very little of the same material in the two books, uh-huh. uh, the lessons that I got uh, that I uh, some of the lessons that I got out of Here Comes the Night were directly applied in thinking up and, and initiating the whole Hollywood Eden project. Okay. Cool. Now, you did you did did you do a lot of dealing with Sam Cutler when you did the Eltamont book? Sam, what did we do? We talked on Skype. Uh-huh. Uh, he'd written his own book, which, of course, was pretty uh, darn good. Yeah, yeah, it was a good book. Uh, and um, then after the book came out, Sam was very uh, uh, um, enthusiastic, and, and we did uh, a, a Facebook Live thing uh-huh. that went out to thousands and thousands of people. Right. Um, and we'd done... A couple of uh, public appearances together. Uh-huh. Sam's a, uh huh. Sam's a funny guy. Sam. Sam is a pirate. Yeah. Uh, and and all uh, occasionally has had more than his share of grog. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, it, he's the real deal. Yep. And you get anything less than that from Sam. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sam's a great guy, and uh, um, he did a podcast with me months and months and months ago, and we're going to be doing another one, and uh, he's really, really. Um, Definitely has a lot to say. <laughs> he's, 
Always. <laughs> Always, yep. Definitely there's a lot to say. But um, let's talk about you. You, um, man, what a great writer you are. Uh, I am so impressed with your books. And, um, and yeah, and, and really, really thankful that, you, um, that you're doing this with us today. I need a little class in my podcast. <laughs> I need somebody. Well, I, I, I like to do everything I can because you never know who's listening. Yes, 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 yes. That's true. Um, yeah, so, Jim, do you have some questions to get started? Well, I'd like to know just a bit about how you got started, John, from before you really became a a really well-known international best-selling author. How you kind of, I know you worked at the SF Chronicle for years, but how did you get into that? How did, what were you doing before that? And was it related to music? And I was. Uh, first of all, I want to say. You know? uh, first of all, I want to say it's fascinating to find out that I've become a, a really well-known international best-selling author. I, I, I almost want to, you know, pick up the phone and call my mother. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, the whole thing is very organic, Jim. You know, uh, I dropped out of high school in in just before June of 1967, which was prime time for dropping out of high school. And shortly thereafter, I landed a job as a copy boy at the San Francisco Chronicle, $55 a week, and all the free tickets to the Fillmore I could handle. Wow. So I started in 1967 going to music like six nights a week, sometimes two shows a night, all on the guest list, and um, thought, that there's probably some future in this journalism and music thing. Ralph Gleason worked at uh -huh. the Chronicle, and uh, uh, I'd gone to high school with his kids and, and, and knew him well. Uh, Rolling Stone's first edition was November of 67. I remember buying it at UC Corner, a newsstand in Berkeley, and you're reading it over uh, uh, lunch at size charbroiler. So all this stuff was going on, and I excused myself to um, do a little uh, uh, higher education at the University of California in Riverside, where I really just spent most of my time writing for the student newspaper. And you know, you could get interviews with anybody, and it was an hour outside of Los Angeles. So I did an awful lot of like uh, music journalism and very little classroom work. I spent a week with Little Richard while he was on the comeback trail and, and interviewed uh, Alvin Lee and Sly Stone and just did, did tons of that stuff and, and realized that's what I wanted to do. Moved back to San Francisco and started like writing among the places of the Chronicle, of course. And it wasn't long before I had a staff position at the Chronicle to write about this stuff. And I, I think, you know, my first Chronicle bylines are like 1970, and I, and I think by 1972, they were paying me every week. Wow. And you, A, can you, did it seem like, you said you moved back to San Francisco, did it seem like San Francisco, obviously you were based there, did it seem like the scene was much more happening there? Because there was a scene happening in, in LA before, or the same time as San Francisco, wasn't there? There was two scenes going on at the same time in a way. They were related. It yeah. was an hour apart. Uh, uh, if you were a San Francisco band, it meant something to be accepted in Los Angeles. If you were a Los Angeles band, it meant something to be taken to the art. 
you know, the, the early adventures in San Francisco by Buffalo Springfield uh, involve a lot of time with Moby Grape. And you mm. can see how there was cross-pollinization going on there. Uh, likewise, The Doors uh, had some early adventures in San Francisco playing gigs and, and, and working the film more with the San Francisco bands. Keep in mind mm. that the San Francisco bands were largely unheard outside of San Francisco until the Monterey Pop Festival. I mean, that was the first time Big Brother and the Holding Company played outside the five Bay Area counties. Yes. And the, the Grateful Dead had like gone to New York after the album came out, but that was about it for their touring. Uh, maybe they'd had a LA. Oh yeah, they went down to LA and did the, um, the, the acid test stuff in like, what, April of 66. Mm. But really it was very limited uh, uh, exposure for those bands and, and, and groups would come in to San Francisco to play like the Avalon or the Fillmore and then they'd hear Quicksilver or they'd hear Big Brother and think, my goodness, you know, what is going on? Because it was before, in the year uh, or 18 months of 1966 and the first half of 1967, what was going on in San Francisco was very different than anywhere else. Uh, Truly unique and 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 highly inspired. Well, I spoke any to any member. Any member. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I spoke to Barry Goldberg Friday night, and he had some great uh, San Francisco memories. Well, the Butterfield Band, which Goldberg wasn't really a part of, but that's what is his, his crowd. Yeah. Uh, but the Butterfield Band was the first monolithic influence on the San Francisco scene. Right. Uh, they, they showed up at the very beginning of the Fillmore era. Uh, era. Yep. And uh, what they already could do was what the San Francisco Band aspired to do. So they had a run in... February of 66 and then a, a long run in March where they played many dates and by the end of March every musician in San Francisco had seen the Butterfield band mm -hmm. and, and and clocked out what what they were doing yeah. and that and those records were super important they were great uh, records the, the first two albums yes and then um, when he left you know when when, when Bloomfield left and uh, started the flag um, Barry said he could only last a few months. He said there was so much um, bad influences in that band that he had to go to L.A., and it took him two years of therapy to get back on his feet that he left San Francisco a mess. Well, you know, uh, Bloomsville life was yeah. uh, uh, just a disaster. Uh, you know, I remember yeah. him telling me in an interview how... He didn't want to live like a tortured genius and, and, and citing Charlie Parker, but he did. Yeah, he that, did. That uh, was his life. Uh, the uh, uh, turned blue so many times that the Mill Valley Fire Department called it the Bloomfield Call. Oh, the Bloomfield Call. Really? Off they go. Revive Mike again. Wow. Uh, and, yeah, uh, it, was, it was Nick Gravenitis that mapped out San Francisco for that crowd. Gravin yeah. had been coming out here since the 50s, you know, and as soon as he read uh, On the Road. Uh -huh. And he, he was like this combination sh in uh, Chicago thug right. and coffee house beatnik. Yeah, Nick the Greek. And the, the, the dichotomy pulled on him when he was in Chicago. But when he was in San Francisco, he could just be that coffee house beatnik, which was much more comfortable. Although I think 
he still did carry a gun with him an awful lot of the time. Yeah, and um, he he did he did some great writing, some great. He was a great writer. He uh... Nick was a tribal elder while he was still a young man, uh-huh. uh, and and he was one of those people that pulled people around him. Yeah, he did some good writing. Born in Chicago is the absolute classic of that whole genre. Uh, and he could sing, and he could play guitar, and he could, you know, pull off the blues. But that wasn't what he was about. What he was about was this force of personality and this sense of scene. He was, and and he's, he's that way to this day. He's in his yeah. 80s, and, yeah. and, and he's still just like, you know, he, he, when he sits down, it's like a throne. Yeah, and he um, he wrote Work Me, Lord, right, for Joplin? That was his song, yeah, he, too, right? Well, the, Janis Joplin was what was paying his rent for Many, many, many years. I think yeah. he wrote a song called Dead People Pay My Rent. <laughs> wow. That's pretty mean. <laughs> well. Any memorable shows, Joel, from those first, as you were establishing yourself at the Chronicle, I suppose you're going to say there's hundreds probably, but any memorable shows from the Fillmore at that time or any well, other? By the time I started at the Chronicle, the Fillmore was past tense. The Fillmore ended in oh, 71. Oh. And so my, and I start writing reviews the next year in 72. Uh, the, I remember uh, there's many, many memorable shows from the 60s and, and 70s at the Fillmore, whether it's like Aretha and, and, and King Curtis or The Last Night at the Fillmore West or New Year's Eve 68, 69 at Winterland with Grateful Dead, Quicksilver, It's a Beautiful Day in Santana. Uh, a lot of shows and you know early Santana shows were just unbelievable Uh, Mm. in my reviewing career the first review that got any attention in the paper because I was such a a insignificant thing that like the yachting report was more important you understand was I wrote a, a, a review of a nightclub show by Bob Marley and the Whalers before it was Bob Marley and the Whalers they'd been stranded in Vegas uh, after two dates or something like that on Sly and the Family Stone tour and a nightclub owner in San Francisco named Scott Peering brought them in on a flyer 1500 bucks because they needed money to get home uh, oh. and the whole Marley thing and it was Tosh and Bunny, Bunny. and Joe Higgs uh-huh. uh, it was this really you know amazing uh, uh, seminal right. group of whalers uh, the shows were unbelievable. The guys were amazing. Uh, and uh, it, there was so much going on with that that it was the first review I wrote that appeared above the fold in the newspaper and had a one column mugshot of Marley in it because the editor was some, you know, bleeding heart left wing liberal who got uh-huh. the whole thing about the, you know, struggle of the masses in, in Marley's music and yeah. figured this mm. wasn't just another dumb rock band. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Well. If I remember rightly, Sly Sly had him booted off the tour, did he? Because he couldn't stand they, there was a, Yeah, they were they were thrown off the tour like you know, the second day. Yeah. Nice. He said something about the ragbag hillbillies. What kind of fucking music are they playing or something like that? Yeah, he, he didn't get it, and, and there was a, uh, what uh, uh, Marley said was a, a chemical incompatibility. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, I mean, um, so you started writing, Joel. Your your first, the Marley thing kind of got you above the 
above the parapet, so to speak. Did it take a long time to establish yourself there? I mean, did they start they didn't to even realize notice I was working there for years? Really? Oh, uh, and, and I had this job. It was a halftime, halftime job. Then it was a halftime job. Then it was a full-time mm. job. And mm. I, I swear to God, you know, they just sort of pushed responsibilities in my lap and gave me real estate in the paper. And they didn't even really notice that I, what I was doing. And, 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 and so it got to be like the 80s. And, and oh, really? the, the uh, uh, audience for the music had grown. And mm. it had grown in the newspaper office. So there were guys like out in the front room that actually listened to this stuff now and didn't think of it as their teenage kids province. And, mm -hmm. and they sort of noticed that there was some guy down the hall that had been writing about it for the paper. And I remember when, it, uh, like, there was uh, never any photographs with my stories because the, the last photographer went off work at 10 o'clock at night. And they wouldn't pay <laughs> overtime or schedule somebody to shoot a rock concert. Yeah. And this guy comes back and he says that he wanted to shoot rock concerts. I said, well, you know, they won't pay you. Right. He says, that's okay, I'll do it on my own time. So he, he started shooting these amazing photos. And, and uh, the reviews now started playing on the front page of the section. And people oh, wow. reading them, and and there was a lot more interest in the subject out there anyway. Um, but at mm -hmm. the end of that year, uh, the guy, the photographer's name was Steve Ringman. He won the International Photojournalist of the Year award, and he had a portfolio of 22 photographs, and five of them had been taken at rock concerts. Wow! So all of a sudden, there was a different attitude about photographing rock concerts. And there were a lot of young photographers, you know, photographers my age anyway. Right. Uh, and so there was suddenly a, mm -hmm. a, 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 you know, a, a new prominence to the coverage in the paper uh, over the dead body. I didn't realize of, it was that late. Guys. Yeah, that's a lot later than I realized. I, I thought they'd kind of gotten onto it a lot earlier than that. Well, the readers they... knew. It was slow, man. Wow. No, the readers knew because I yeah. could connect with the readers because there was an interest in the subject matter. So, mm. you know, they, they, they learned quickly out there in Chronicle Land that w the Winterland show was going to be in Monday's paper. Uh -huh. And it, it wasn't necessarily going to be on the front page. Of, but the day, in those days, you know, the, the entertainment was uh, downplayed in the whole newspaper. It was in the middle of the section. And if they hadn't run the TV listings, about half the people that subscribed wouldn't have even opened the section. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, That's, um, you said that everybody knew everybody for a while. As the scene progressed, I'm talking about the first early boom. I, I think it's kind of said that maybe Credence and Santana were the last gasp of that first scene before it. I always think like, Tower of Power. Tower of Power. Oh, Tower of Power. I always think they were the last ones out the door. Uh huh. All right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. They sort of made yeah. their splash on a Tuesday night audition at the Fillmore, uh -huh. and yeah. uh, they they got in on the San Francisco Records label of Fillmore, and they were on yeah. the Fillmore West. They were the, uh, they were on the final week, and they played. They opened for Aretha and, and King Curtis, which was the last great show there. And yeah. So yeah, I think Tower Power were the last ones through New York. Wow. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how accessible were were these bands towards the end of that scene? Because when you watch 
that rather strange movie, the film, which looks like being filmed by people stoned as hell, the film, Last Nights of the Film or whatever it's Last Days of the Film or sorry, they seemed to be more inaccessible then, but were they, was that just the way the film portrays them or did you find that as well, that they become, you know, moved into Marin, got money and all the stuff or? Oh, the scene, the scene had changed a lot. You know, it wasn't like the bands used to uh, used to be, uh, you know, hanging out and w when they weren't playing, watching the same bands you were uh, no. from the audience. You know, there was a backstage world that had developed, and yeah, there was you know, mm. uh, stratification, uh, mm. and and you know, the the drug scene changing had a lot to do with that. I always felt like when everybody was on acid. It, it was a big love fest and there weren't any real barriers between people and you know pot mm -hmm. sort of encouraged a, a convivial community vibe but when they started doing blow it was like you know hey psst, come with me let's go over here in secret and we can't really share this yeah yeah, yeah. so a, a lot of that you know had more influence than probably people re realized Right, and then uh, her then heroin, of course, ruined uh, so many bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not as much as it ruined jazz, but uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true too. But I, I mean, mean I, the first the first big review I remember of uh, my favorite band to come out that scene, Santana, was by uh, Ralph Gleason writing a really nice piece in the Stone for them. But you were they were always your favorite band. Did you have much access to? The kind of inner the, the dissolution of the group as they became bigger and bigger, the problems that they encountered with Stan Markham and Ron Astor. So that's and all off my watch. Uh, I, sort of, you know, where I walk in in the in the dissolution of things was I was I walked in right at the middle of the of the Credence Clearwater dissolution. You know, I met those guys when they were doing Pendulum and did a bunch of interviews with them. And then Tom split, and uh, they, uh, they're a trio, and I did a bunch of interviews with those guys. Uh, so, but the Santana thing had already sort of drizzled out, and there, you know, Raleigh was up in Seattle, and and Neil was in Azteca for a minute, and then he was in Graham Central Station for a minute, and then Herbie rolled out Journey, and I reviewed Journey's second gig in the pages of the Chronicle. And this is back in the days when, you know, they didn't know what the heck to do with my stuff. Uh, and they, uh, they, they ran a mugshot of Carlos Santana with my review okay. of Journey. Because they were former members of yeah. the Santana. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, we won't, I don't think we ought to go down the Carlos Santana trail with you at the moment, should we? I think you and him are not. not Carlos and me, we're like, we're like this. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, although I, I, he's such a, 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 a pathetic uh, egotist that uh, I, I did in the in the waning days of my reviewing at the Chronicle cross paths with him on a show. I think it was a Hendrix tribute that he was on a bill with a bunch of people, and 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 and, and you know gave him his due because he played beautifully that night, and uh, the, uh, got a dozen white roses the next day from him and you know that was kind of icky come on carlos you know <laughs> <What>? <laughs> the last time i saw carlos though jim you'll like this 
the, the original Santana band got back together for a, a, a minute yeah. at the yeah. uh, uh, Garden Latin Music Awards yeah. at, at Bimbo's, and it was it was it was a great moment. I mean, uh, there there's funny stories to be told about just a very short period of time, but the, for the purposes of this, at the end of it, afterwards, I wanted to go backstage and 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 you know, say hey to Carabello and Raleigh and, and you know, give them mm -hmm. a, 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 but Carlos was in the front of the backstage entrance, surrounded by his well-wishers, just like in the hey. middle of like, and I had to like edge my way around the crowd to, to get in the backstage entrance. And I was like, and, and, and then Carlos finally, he sees me, he goes, hey, Joel, Joel. Hello, Joel. And and uh, hey, Carlos, you know, he goes, Joel, is this the year that you finally write the truth in the Chronicle? Nice set. Wow. <laughs> fake, fake press, fake press. <laughs> he was holding my hand, shaking my hand, and wouldn't let go of it. You know that that riff. Oh, well, uh, you know, Carlos and I, you know. He, he's like, uh, he can't handle uh, that kind of stuff. He's just, like Graham couldn't handle either. Gra Graham always thought I worked for him and he just didn't pay me. Mm -hmm. Now, anytime I did something that went against his grain or that he didn't like, you know, he acted like I was some, like, maligned employee. He was such a fucking asshole. Excuse me. That's okay. <laughs> we don't mind. You're well, talking about Bill Graham, not Larry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I began to, I mean, I, obviously I didn't grow up in the same circumstance. You were always deeply interested in some of the bands that came out of the Bay Area. And your books, particularly Sly Stone, The Oral History, and later on Summer of Love, they were really like a, they were like a real red pill, really, to, to describe the most, the insanity of, of what happened to some of those bands when they stood at the top and then, that book was so dark in a way, so brutal that it was. Uh, how did you find writing that book, uh, Joel? It was I, uh, the, the Sly Stone book was uh, uh, just an incredible adventure. Uh, it, it started out with talking to sort of the most obvious people, and they'd all been interviewed before, and there wasn't much that, that I didn't know. Uh, mm. But they kept mentioning other people, and mm. it was when I found Hamp Banks that. Uh, oh, the, the, the door opened to the story you're talking about. Nobody had ever Bob, asked Bob Hamp, Bob Hamp. Hamp, Hamp, was, Hamp was a pimp and a, 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 a ghetto gangster who had been married to Rose and who had been Sly's best friend both before he went to jail when Sly was just a disc jockey and after he got out of jail, which was just after Woodstock. So uh, nobody had ever asked uh, Hamp his story. And, and Hamp was happy to tell it. Hamp, Hamp not only told the story, but he lined up a lot of other interviews for me that I could not have obtained myself. I mean, for instance, I've been trying to get Bobby Womack to talk to me for two months. Uh -huh. Oh, okay. And, and Hamp calls him up and just leaves a message on his machine and says, uh, it's Hamp, I'm here now, you call that boy. And uh, about 45 minutes later, I had Womack on the phone. I didn't even have to ask a question. He just started talking. Wow. Uh, so that was the kind of thing that the advantage I had. Hamp Banks really was the spectacular contributor to that, and and he was the one that opened up to the true story of Sly Stone. 
And well, then I make a second round of interviews with all the, the schmoes that I talked to before. And it was like, oh, yeah, whoa, oh, yeah, well. And I remember Greg Arico, who uh, was one of the chief guys whose story changed like night and day, huh? telling me, you know, he's saying, yeah, Hamp's a lot of things, but he's no bullshitter. Right. And that's the truth. Everybody knew Hamp to be the guy he was. Wow. Wow. And, and um, that story, it's almost beyond dark, really. I mean, it seemed to me that they were into stuff that was so bizarre, like the use of something called PCP or Angel, Angel Dust. Angel Dust. How yeah. about the dog?
lies and deceit and betrayal, all in a day's work in the summer of love. Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Yeah, well, you no, know, this is, the, this is why Sam Andrews introduced me to his friends as the Mickey Spillane of rock journalism. Yeah, Sam was a great guy. I liked Sam a lot. He yeah. was a little dubious about me, but that made me just like him even more. We really hated after that book came out. Because there was a kind of confection made about that scene. I don't think... I mean, I didn't know a lot of the stuff that went on then. You know, how yeah. would I... How would you know that stuff? There is a protective gauze over rocks myths. Yes. Yeah. And you yes. violate that gauze at your own risk. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine what my standing in the Grateful Dead community is like after I after Fare Thee Well? Pretty low, I would think. Pariah is the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, they yeah. can't handle that stuff. Yeah, but you, you had that. They don't want to know that Phil Lesh is an asshole. You know, that's mm. just not part of their purview. Right. Uh, yeah. But I'm a I'm a writer and 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 I, I like dark stories. Uh, they, they're like life. Hello there. Wow. Uh, and uh, you know I, I I'm not I'm not scared of the truth. The the, the truth uh, is is what makes uh, the, the components of stories and 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 epics and adversity, overcoming adversity or succumbing to adversity. They're equal to that. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, Joel, that book, going back to the Summer of Love at the moment, LSD and the Wild Wild uh, Times, Wild Wild West, um, it seemed like an incredibly detail-rich book to me. No, it seemed like it was an incredibly detail-rich book. Did it take you a long time to actually do that book? Because it seemed like a real dense, densely informational book. Yeah, I also you know? worked at the Chronicle full-time while I was writing that book. So yeah, uh, what happened there, Jim, was that the guy that signed me to write the book was mm. fired 90 days later. And the second editor lasted about a year, maybe less than a year. So by the time that the guy that actually oversaw the publication, yeah. I'd been through three or four editors that I hadn't even met. And essentially they kind of forgot about me. And when, the, when I delivered the manuscript four and a half years later, it was like, oh, wow, look at this. Where did this come from? Hey, this isn't bad. This is kind of good. Uh, I do remember one fantastic uh, story. It's like uh, the next to the last editor, I showed him the photos. And he loved the photos. He said he wanted to give me $5,000 and I should put a second photo insert together. So he leaves. And the next editor comes up and we're getting ready to like plan books. And I told Ed, I said, you know, Chris was going to give me $5,000 for a second photo insert. And, and are you guys ready for a lesson in book publishing? Yeah. The guy said, $5,000. I can get a piece of fiction for that. Stack <laughs> <laughs> wow. rack them, and stack them. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> wow. It's um, I I don't know if I told you, uh, Joel, but I was offered that Sly Stone book by um, Hal Leonard, and do you know how much they do you know how much they had on the table for it? Six thousand dollars for the book. 
Well, Kalis, that was a very, very huge uh, ethical quandary for me, okay? I don't know about going public with this, but what for the fuck? So I know Jeff Kalis. All right. I, I, I worked with him as an editor and him as a freelance writer at The Chronicle. And I, and I found right. him to be uh, absolutely insufficient. And I, uh, and I stopped hiring him and I stopped using his stuff. And it was, uh, I, I found his professional standards were low. I found him personally sort of obnoxious. I mean, I just didn't see anything th th about the guy that Mayor mm. recommended him. Yeah. And so he, he calls me up and says he has this book deal and he'd like to uh, 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 have me uh, cooperate. Mm. Now, in my life, I have made a absolute policy of returning the kind of cooperation that I ask of people when I do my projects. Mm -hmm. My files are open to anybody who wants to go through them. Mm -hmm. Anything I've got that I've acquired, I'm happy to share. Uh, yeah. And But I had to think this one over. Only Wendy's serves a better breakfast with a better biscuit. Our hot buttery breakfast biscuits are loaded with a fresh cracked egg, cheese, and your choice of bacon or sausage. Did we mention the part where Wendy's biscuits are hot and buttery? Wendy's breakfast biscuits, hot and buttery. So don't take a chance with those other guys. Bet on a better breakfast with Wendy's bacon or sausage egg and cheese biscuit. Choose wisely. Choose Wendy's. At participating U.S. Wendy's during breakfast hours. Hi, I'm Flo from Progressive. Being a baseball fanatic like me can be stressful. It's not all sports points and touchdowns. So Progressive is going to help you take your mind off your team for a moment. Instead of thinking about how they missed that goal point score, think about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive letting you choose coverage options based on your budget. Unlike your team that missed the end zone net area. Well, anyway, hope this distraction about Progressive's Name Your Price tool was helpful. It sure kept me from thinking about all those penalty balls. Yay, sports! Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Like Kalis, I'm going to try, because uh, I have a treasure trove. I have the entire transcripts to all my Sly Stone interviews because I had them transcribed and mm -hmm. I had them printed and I saved them all. I mean, the wow. stack this big. Mm -hmm. I, wow. I pondered that for quite a while and realized that, that, that my dislike of Kalis or my approval of Kalis or whatever was just not important and that I had to live up to my karmic responsibilities. And I mm -hmm. gave those interviews. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I don't believe he would have had a book without them. He was wow. scrupulous about attributing his use of them. I'll give him that. I mean, every time he quoted one of them, he said, you know, so-and-so told Selvin. Okay. And I'd say, I'd say more than half the quotes come from those interviews. Really? That was a fucking terror. I don't give a fuck what he thinks. That was one of the worst books I've ever. It just, it was so boring. He, ma he well, so What about those Dutch guys? They put out a really boring book. I mean, the the the. the you mean the ones with all these single? They tried to get a deal with. Uh, I don't know if we should talk about this, but they tried to get a deal in England for that, but I, I think they were turned down because they thought it was really dull as well. You talking about the one with all the album sleeves? It's a real ah. thick. They did a George Clinton one too, but it's. It's just obsessive kind of fan stuff, really. I think. But the there's been some book, really the bad book. stuff done about Sly. The the there was a very deep, interesting article done in the '90s by a, a writer named Joe Wood. In, oh, right. uh, okay. I think it was in Vibe magazine. Oh, I've read that. Yeah, that was great. Man. Yeah. Joe Wood later lost his all uh, in the wood. 
in, in the forest camping. Ne 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 his body was eventually recovered. Really? Yeah. Whoa. But that was a that was a very good piece. That was a very good piece. And there was also a really crazy uh, uh, Dutch guy that did a, a, a very funny documentary film about looking for Sly. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, it's it's in very funny guy. Wolf. A Wolf. Wolf would call me every few years. You know, he's always up to something crazy. Yeah. Why is the deal with Sly? There's been quite a few, or certainly two or three movies being made on him. I guess is it all the Jerry Goldstein stuff that stops it? coming out. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about Jerry Goldstein. Well, I'll tell you this, that uh, in the last stages of the lawsuit with Goldstein, where there was, uh, he was, um, Sly was under the uh, uh, supervision of a, a pair of lawyers who had financed his lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And they had him in 90 days worth of rehab, and they were worried about what he was going to do when he got out of rehab. Uh -huh. And they wanted him to write a book. Uh, and so this bounced into this ball bounced into my court, and I ended up on the phone with Sly. Okay. He was still in rehab, and he wanted to know if he could make ninety thousand dollars on a mem uh, on a book, because he wanted to buy an RV, a ninety thousand dollar RV. Hmm. Now let's just for a minute contemplate that ninety thousand dollars isn't a lot to spend on an RV. I mean, my buddy Steve Miller has a $500,000 RV. Okay. But uh, uh, he wanted to spend an, uh, buy an RV, and he wanted to know when you got paid. He wanted to understand, you know, how you got paid, when you did the work, and when you got the check. Right, okay. And he called me a couple days later without the lawyers being involved, uh, and wanted me to walk him through the payout again, you know, like now, when do I have to do the work and when do we get the check? And so I didn't sense that he was particularly um, serious about the project. Uh, mm. The lawyers were probably more serious. And I was uh, told that the day he got out of rehab of 90 days, he drove straight to his dealer's house and subsequently disappeared into some place uh, somewhere in New England. And, you know, the lawyers, well, they won the case and then it went into appeal. So they're they're still years away from getting any dough on that. Well, Goldstein's managed Goldstein's. I guess there's when you've got when you're dealing with that kind of level of money, there's there's all kinds of barriers to getting to the truth of it. But he's uh, we're going to do Harold Brown from War soon, and hopefully we may ask him something about the war story too. But. Uh, Goldstein's a very shy. He actually wrote some hits too, didn't he, in the early days? I know Jerry very well because oh, of right. the, the, the Burt Burns book. Right. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. And and uh, he was uh, uh, very much a, a part of Burt Burns' career, or the other way around, mm -hmm. uh, when he was with the Strange Loves. Um, so, no, I know Jerry very well. Uh, and I also, David Kaprilek, who was the Sly Stone manager, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. he was. Uh, Suing, uh, in sometime in the 90s, uh, in the late 90s, uh, to uh, recover his uh, end of the publishing deal. And in discovery, he uncovered um, a document that Sly had signed in 1991, turning over 100% of his royalties 
to Jerry Goldstein. Now, it was surmised that that was a dodge to get around tax liens. Mm-hmm. You mean back, back, back royalty stuff? IRS tax liens, yes. Yeah, yeah. And to preserve the, the, the integrity of the, um, of the payments. Right. But mm-hmm. there's no evidence that there's a subsequent document granting Sly any of the rights back. Right. So by document, since 1991, Jerry Goldstein's owned those things. Wow. Wow. Nice work if you can get it. I mean, he signed it. You know, there is a decision in, in, in jurisprudence. It's known as the Alan Toussaint decision. And it commemorates some rather draconian contracts that Toussaint had people sign. Mm-hmm. And the, the kind of legal upshot of the Alan Toussaint decision, it's kind of, well, you signed it. You must have known what it said. Wow. What about though the fact that Sly was probably a hundred sheets to the wind and has been obviously impaired. He was a fugitive from justice at the time, living under an assumed name. I would think there would be all kinds of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, interesting sort of legal uh, avenues to uh, try and undermine that. But the truth is the document's the document, you know, and, and in law... They yeah. tend to go with that. You signed it. You must have known what it said. I, I understand that Willie Dixon used to do that, too, to these um, poor uh, African-American blues guys. He would take them out for lunch and uh, give them, like, 25 bucks, and he would take their tunes, and uh, they became his. Um, I don't know how true it is, but that was, you know. Willie Dixon is one of the people uh, who, out of the Chicago blues scene who has a fairly unblemished uh-huh. uh, 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 reputation. I would remind you that he served in prison uh-huh. rather than World War II as a conscientious objector because he wasn't going to defend the racist nation. Yeah. Well, he was a okay. very strong brother. Uh, well, you know how true the stories are. They said that that was the. Uh... I've never heard that about Dixon, and I've heard a lot about other people. Uh huh. One thing too, Joel, getting into from a an artistic creative point of view, one of the things that I've enjoyed about your writing too, on a personal level, is is there's a kind of a very sardonic humor which comes out in certain sentences while you write. <laughs> and I remember one of them was um these are some examples that made me laugh because there's a certain sarcasm in it, which is quite unusual because a lot of American writers are not that well, sarcastic in a way. And uh, one of them was uh, something about Skip Spence uh, with Moby Grape crashing his uh, one of his bandmates' door down, and it, it looked like he shaved with a rusty axe. I always thought that was a really funny line, you know, just the idea of somebody trying to shave with an axe. You know, and well, I don't think sarcasm is entirely the exclusive province of British writers, but oh um... no, no, not at all. No, <laughs> no. that actually made me laugh out loud when I read it. It was like, and um, there was a thing about Chapito in the Summer of Love book saying the outgoing arrears, yeah, just the way you said the outgoing arrears, as if he was at a, a social soiree, and at the time he's of course flashing his. A member to 
passing French women from a French hotel. And I just, the combination of the outgoing Arrayus was just such a funny thing to have written it. I first started laughing when I read that. And certain kind of, um, you know, sentence constructions. Like there was another good one I liked. Uh, you mentioned something about Shreve and Santana talking at the Paisley Penguin once. And there's a really, for any, any of those who don't know who are listening, Shreve, Michael Shreve is the original Santana drummer. And Carlos is the Santana namesake. And he's, they're walking across the thing, and uh, Shreve said, you can't tell, was it? You can't tell him to do that. It's not your group. And Santana goes, not yet. And then you said, a chill rippled through the drama. And I thought that was a really nice, just a nice touch to kind of convey that sudden waking up, a realisation that, oh, a red pill moment where you realise, fuck, things are not what I thought they were at all, you know, so... Those writerly things, from a writer's point of view, I found really very interesting, Joel. You know what I mean? And, well, I, and I really I, picked up on that stuff a lot. You know, I, I really appreciate your attention to detail. Mm. Uh, in, in something like that, I, I'm sure something Michael said to me cued that. I never yeah. add details that I fabricate. Uh, I will oh, sometimes yeah. project details that seem obvious to me or, uh, you know, drill down a level on something somebody said but they never come out a whole cloth and uh, the idea of summer of love the overweening uh, uh, purpose of that book was to find out what it was like to be those people yeah. that was what I wanted to know when I was out in the audience in the Fillmore in 1967 and 68 and 69 watching these bands and being as excited by everything as everybody else, I wondered what was it like to be in Santana? What was it like to be in the Jefferson airplane? Yeah. And that was the, what the uh, exploration was for that book. And to a certain extent, I, I think that sort of carries through the rest of the work, you know, that the, the, the elemental experience of the book would be to sense what it was like for those characters under those circumstances at Altamont or, uh, mm -hmm. like, you know, Burt Burns's life dealing with gangsters and, and Atlantic Records uh, uh, partners and mm -hmm. uh, or, or in this this latest thing, which is, you know, largely about the Beach Boys, Jan and Dean and Nancy Sinatra and a bunch of people that went to high school together yeah. in West Hollywood in the 50s. Wow. wow, man. It, uh, it's really, I mean, in a different way to the English music scene, it's uh, when those musicians bump up against the mob and that, you realize how their lives are worth nothing. It doesn't matter how creative they are. If they make the wrong move, they could end up with, like, one leg or, or, or not end up at all, or just end up. That's it. They just end. And it's to think of that kind of sheer brutality of it in a way is quite amazing isn't it these people that are revered by so many people for their insight their emotion their integrity and on the other side of it because these people that don't give a fuck at all it's uh I, that came across very much you but but burns film you know i watched that and i really enjoyed that as well. yeah yeah you've got some jan and dean links there haven't you uh, yeah you i did um i did a later show with them um uh, it was after Jan's accident. I guess it was in the early 80s. 
It was set for an HBO uh, airing and never took place. But we brought Jan and Dean in and um, uh, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin were the MCs. Um, we had the club uh, converted into a beach thing in New York and the whole bit. And um, uh, Jan was already a little, um, you know, he wasn't doing that great. He obviously had, you know, he was brain damaged and everything else. And Dean was running the show at the time. And um, he, it, it was pretty apparent that Dean was really taking advantage of Jan. I mean, he would tell people that back in the old days, Jan was um, uh, getting the bigger percentage of uh, of the duo's, uh, um, you know, income. And now it was flipped. Dean was getting the bigger percentage. And Jan was pretty much um, uh, um, kind of paraded around like, like, like um, you know, uh, just anybody could have, been Jan pretty much. You know, Jan had very little to do with anything else. And Jan was... I'm sorry? I can't hear you. No, no, he could walk. He could walk. Um, he, it, couldn't, he couldn't sing very well. No. And he couldn't talk very well. No. But he, he was very present. Yes. He was very aware of where he was and what he was doing. And he was taking an immense pleasure yeah. out of just being in front of audiences yes. and being in the band. And it was a huge therapeutic event for him but he wasn't very capable no no and dan they, they, was that with papa do run run back behind them um at, uh, at the yeah i believe it was actually and so that um, was a santa cruz band that had been doing beach boys and jan and dean songs yeah, yeah. long before that and, yeah. and they've been very popular around the beach doing yeah. that stuff and they, and they had it down right they had sick fingers in the band they had every part covered twice and they could carry Jan, and Dean needed carrying too, by yes, the way. Yes, yes, he did. Uh, the, they could carry those guys to the end of the show. They were yeah. fabulous. They were great. But, um, uh, Joel, do you know uh, Michael Epstein back in New York, Epi? Okay, I used, to work okay. At a I used to work in a club called My Father's Place. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Epi Epstein was the owner. I was general manager. Okay, I should at... know the club. It was out on Long Island, right? Yeah, yeah, in Rosalind. I was the general manager at the club at the time. And... Um, uh, Jan had a um, cocaine problem, and um, you know I, you know he was getting the drugs through the band, so to speak, and you know he would get paid, and the guys in the band would take his money, and it, it was really pathetic. It really was, and um, I remember talking to Howard Kalin about it. Uh, we were sitting around at the end of the show, like the next morning, and. Um, Nobody cared. It was just you know he was he was pretty much a showpiece, you know. And and Dean couldn't go out on the road and make money, so it had to be Jan and Dean. Jan was this. So Dean, Dean didn't make any dough with that. He was he, he had a graphics arts company that he was living off of. Yeah, that was it was a it was a thing that he felt like had to do because Jan needed it so much and and. It was a very much of a burden to him, and, and yeah. Dean's not exactly like, uh, you know, warm-hearted, giving, loving guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's looking for his end of the deal too. Sure. And also, you know, he was under Jan's thumb the whole time they were Jan and Dean. Yes. Uh, and 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 he was just the patsy, and Jan yep. was the genius. And and and, so, and 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 he pretty much said that. They, and they weren't pals. Yeah. They, they, they weren't friends. No. Uh, I think Dean uh, was at the hospital twice. Yeah, yeah. And Dean, and Dean had this whole, um, he was pretty arrogant about it. It's my turn to be the uh, guy in charge now. And, yeah, and, I'm sure he was. 
Yeah. I met with Dean uh, uh, prior to doing the book, and I talked to him for a while, and uh, I read his book, yeah. and I talked to Lou Adler, who was their manager, right. and I realized there was nothing I was going to get out of Dean that wasn't some self-serving fantasy. Right. So I never really went back to like detail out our discussions. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's who he was, and, and, and I had enough material to, to, to for, about him. Yeah, Dean was pretty much a prick. He really was. I mean, to, you know. Just, just a, a, a sort of, a, you know, low potential guy who, you know, Hollywooded his way through this deal. I mean, he was, it's, he's a peculiar character in, in the book. Right. And then, he, you know, he's practically in the background the whole time. Uh, I mean, he doesn't even sing on Surf City. Right, I think right, right. Brian Wilson sings more on Jan and Dean records than yeah, Dean does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, the yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's a strange di- uh, 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 dialect between uh, uh, those two, uh, dichotomy between those two. Yeah, it was yeah. very partnership. It was, it was like an old-time comedy team that didn't really like each other. But yeah, yeah, that's what he reminded me of. Abbott and Costello. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, the vibe I got. Uh, and Dean was pretty much saying, hey, you know, it's my turn to be the big man now. How many times did you put them on then? This is a kind of a review that was going on. Uh, you, were, they, were they big? Or? I don't know much about Jan and Dean. Oh, oh, well, we, well, I spent maybe a week with them. And, uh, you know, then we, then we did the show. And we, another day or two afterwards, you know, we kind of hung and... Uh, you know, I was driving them around and stuff. I was taking care of them. And, uh, you know, it, so I, I kind of saw the ugly part of it, you know? That's great, man. I mean, um, one thing that was interesting, Joel, was... Um... Only Wendy's serves a better breakfast with a better biscuit. Our hot, buttery breakfast biscuits are loaded with a fresh cracked egg, cheese, and your choice of bacon or sausage. Did we mention the part where Wendy's biscuits are hot and buttery? Wendy's breakfast biscuits, hot and buttery. So don't take a chance with those other guys. Bet on a better breakfast with Wendy's bacon or sausage egg and cheese biscuit. Choose wisely. Choose Wendy's. At participating U.S. Wendy's during breakfast hours. As you probably joined and started... Well, Jan and Dean didn't have many hit records in England. I'm just looking here. Wow. I have no idea. I, do you know what? I don't know. Because they had can't... two hit records in England. They had uh, 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 Heart and Soul and Surf City. Wow. That's all they had. They, they had no career at all in England. I had no idea. I, they, they, did. they didn't mean anything to me. I mean, I always thought they were kind of something before the Beach Boys that wasn't very important. But that's just my own ignorance. You can't. You can't know it all, well, you can, but I don't. Um, well, you'll, 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 you'll have a different viewpoint after this. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, and growing up in England, it was very, a lot of that stuff seemed, there was no media then. I mean, going back to Santana very briefly, they there was nothing about them at all in the media, nothing. You'd read it a sentence, and that was it. There was tons of stuff about the Beatles all the time, or the Stones, but nothing about a lot of the American fans. Well, you know, um, Santana didn't get a lot of press on the East Coast either. You know, you kind of knew they were there. You knew Oye Como Va, but you didn't know. You guys are talking about, man. But and after, in 1970, there wasn't a more uh, uh, in, in, copied, influential. Uh, they were selling 100,000 records a week uh, with of those first two albums. 
uh, prior to the release of the third album. Uh, when they played uh, uh, Hammersmith Odeon, it was the, the fucking who's who of English rock in the first three rows. Right. Uh, and and the, the greatest uh, compliment of all uh, is the Rolling Stones uh, on Sticky Fingers. Of, uh, Can't you hear me Can't knocking? Can't you hear me knocking? Yeah, I mean, what, what more do you want? That Rolling Stones imitating your band. No, 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 you knew that you knew their music, you knew they were around, but there was no, um, like really media no, they, that you, you well, Carlos wouldn't do interviews, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they decided no interviews, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, because Carlos couldn't fucking speak English, yeah. I mean, you knew that you knew their music, you knew you knew who they were, but you know, like every other band, you know, uh, you know, what's your favorite color, Carlos, that kind of stuff. Do you remember the Ben Fontori's piece? Resurrection oh, of yeah, yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. That was the first time those guys came out out in the public at all. Right. Well, that had been a, a, a specific decision that they were not going to seek publicity on that level whatsoever. Uh huh. I thought it was interesting a band that big. It made them even more mysterious than they seemed already. You know, which is the last you know, thing you want is Carlos uh, giving an uh, interview in broken English. You know. <laughs> yeah. Greg could talk, couldn't he? I mean, they weren't. Greg and Tree were pretty bright, you know. Yeah. You know, I mean, Greg Raleigh was once described to me as, by his manager as being so smart he was practically disqualified as a musician. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I worked with Michael. I worked with Michael. I worked with Michael Shree for a while, Joel, in in uh, his Novo Combo band. You don't remember Novo Combo? Back in, uh, back in, back in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Two records on Polydor? Polydor, yeah, yeah. Um, 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 Steve Dees from Hall and Oates was in that band. And, um, you know, just two, you know, uh, Pete Hewlett, who was a secession guy pretty much. Uh, yeah, they, they weren't the greatest, um, you know, they weren't commercially, there was no greatness there, but uh, they were an interesting act. Yeah, but sounding a bit too like the police. Yeah. You know, which was the problem for them, probably. Um, as the 70s start, are you all right for time, Joel, by the way? You got uh, yeah, let's, let's take a few more minutes and, you know. Okay, man. Uh, Joel, are you still in that band? Wait, are you still are you still playing? I haven't been with the Remainders for a long time. Oh no! Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, we we played a gig at uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame gala dinner at the opening of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the next uh, uh, Monday, uh, Mitch Album uh -huh. uh, crossed the picket line at the Detroit News. Had some bullshit about how you know he owed it to his readers or something like that. I was still a Union newspaper writer, right? So we get yeah. another. Uh, um, invitation to play some gig down in disney world uh -huh. and that and these were all discussed by emails you know gang emails sure and i i wrote up and said sure i'm uh, uh let's take the disney world gig but who's going to play keyboards because i ain't getting on stage with no fucking scab <laughs> and, and 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 that just started some giant uh disagreement between everybody about everything wow. uh like amy tan said music isn't about politics and Dave Marsh jumped down her throat and told her to grow up. Really? And uh, uh, Roy Blunt said that he didn't want to do anything that had anything to do with Disney. 
and Steve King said thought thought that was a pretty good idea, and <laughs> so I thought the band had broken up, and the next time they had a gig, they didn't invite me. Uh oh. <laughs> their key, and you were their key member, pretty much. Oh, I was nothing. Nobody missed me. For the I, used to, I, used, I used to joke that my name, I was going to change my name to Manny. <laughs> Manny. So that when we got up on stage and they said, uh, Steve King, Amy Tan, Dave Barry, and many more, I could say that was a typo. There you go. <laughs> Manny Moore. Manny Moore, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I remember somebody asking for my autograph after a nightclub, and before I walked away, she showed it to her friend and said, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, fuck her. <laughs> Are you kidding? That's my fan. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> That's your fan. I think she's listening to this podcast. <laughs> Dregny's biography of Django Reinhardt. I think that's just a brilliant piece of work. There is a biography of Howlin' Wolf by a, a pair of writers, I, I, I regret not being able to recollect their names, that I think is one of the great uh, uh, accomplishments of blues history. Oh. Although Bruce Conford's recent biography of Robert Johnson is just astonishing uh, work of scholarship. Mm. Uh, and I've never, uh, ever than anything but incredibly impressed by anything that Nick Toshis wrote. Okay. All right. Uh, the Elvis. Elvis books. Uh, he wrote uh, a biography of Jerry Lee Lewis. He wrote an incredible biography of Dean Martin. He wrote a book about Sonny Liston. Uh, he's, he's written a tremendous amount about the sort of seamy underside of pop music. And uh, mm-hmm. it, uh, he's just one of those people whose uh, abilities with words is just uh, supernatural. Wow, fantastic. I have the Dean Martin book here, actually. Dino, something. Ah, The opening page. uh, I I read the opening page every time I start to write a book. Really? Yeah, yeah. I just remember how books are supposed to start. Let me write that down. I want to check that out. Um, Do you know what, Joel? We've done over an hour now. I'd really like, if you've got time, to do another one of about an hour because I'd really like to talk to you about some of the other books you've done, the Altamont book, the Grateful Dead book, the upcoming Hollywood Eden, the uh, San Francisco, sorry, San Francisco musical history tour as well, which has got a lot of detail about the clubs and venues in the Bay Area, in the city and around. Um, I don't know if you're up for that, but it'd be great. We can, we, can, we can put another one on the schedule, Jim. You've been such a stalwart supporter of my work, and you've done such great work in the field yourself. I'm happy to be, you know, uh, 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 and and I'm very very flattered by the amount of detail that you've gone to. to well, they you know. literally did make me laugh, and uh, I remember reading the Chapito thing as if it was yesterday. Just I burst out laughing because it was the way it was written. I mean, the thing itself was insane, so, but the I way you not, wrote it added to it. You know, <laughs> I, I I like to write from my attitudes, but I was not aware that I was funny until. I watched a audience see the Burt Burns movie. The Burt Burns movie is all straight out of my book. Yeah. All the narration is drawn from my book. And Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that they were laugh lines. 
but they play in front of an audience in that movie. And it's all the understatement that you're talking about. You call it sarcasm. It's really more ironic understatement. Yeah, uh -huh. ironic, actually, yeah. And, you know, outgoing. That's an ironic understatement for some guy who's white that is leading, right? And I do traffic in that ironic understatement. And, and in front of an audience, and I sat underneath the screen and watched the audience. I'd seen the movie about 50 times. Uh, mm -hmm. And they were laughing all through the movie, and I realized that this ironic understatement just pulled the laughs for them. I didn't know that that, that was funny. Yeah. That was just me ha with my little attitude, which is, you know, very much in that, you know, belittling of things, trying to, to minimalize stuff. Well, yeah, yeah. But also, just going back to that Chapito sentence, it's the, it's the normality of the beginning with the abnormality of the ending joined together, <laughs> which is so funny. It's like, it's just it's priceless that was that that always makes me smile when i think about it and the skip spence one the skip spence thing was just like fucking hell this guy bursting through your hotel door and, and that bang did you um somebody's done a book on the moby grave i would have thought that was a band you would have liked to have written about joel or am i wrong well, I, I wrote about them in summer of love obviously yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 and and I, I really, you know, I, I, I would hesitate to put work, uh, the amount of work that would be necessary to write yeah. a book about uh, yeah. uh, Moby Grape and then have the audience that that book would command. Yeah, because in a way, they're not, they were a cult band then in a way, and they certainly probably are now. I remember the move, the move covered there. I became aware of them from the move covering a song called Hey Grandma. Mm -hmm. they okay, album. And it was fucking great. The Moose version was brilliant. Because yeah. they also used to do the love cover, Stephanie Note 2. Is that on an album? Yeah, the first Move album called The Move. Yeah. It's got a version of Hey Grandma, and it's very good. I'm giving up. Uh, I think I have that album. And um, the uh, the Move live at the Marquee has got a fantastic version live of Stephanie Knows Who by Love. Yeah. They were doing fucking really hip cover versions that other bands weren't even even the beat you know i mean they were really hip to move but they when, didn't when jeff lynn is the second most talented person in your band you're in a good group yeah oh, this is pre-jeff lynn it's pre-lynn yeah the first five guys they were into soul they were into psychedelia they were yeah. well worth grape had that great 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 first album yeah and uh they were super exciting on the bandstand, like in the first half of 1967, if you caught them at the Fillmore, they were just incredibly strong. Three, three wow. guitarists. Yeah, three guitarists. And, and Vocals, three singers. You know who modeled themselves after Moby Grape is the Doobie well, the Brothers. Move, the move did. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Doobie Brothers were quite conscious about, like, three guitars, three voices, uh -huh. all that. That's well, a wonderful sound. That's right, you're right. A lot of bands. I heard the, uh, Tyran Porter sing Fall On You in a, a sound check that the Doobie Brothers did in 75. Uh -huh. uh, and it, it was awesome. It was awesome. Really? Well. Can you, it sounds to me like maybe the Aretha King Curtis Tower of Power show at the Fillmore West was maybe, was that one of your all-time greats or the best or the greatest? Or? She, she rocked the place. For well, I've heard the album, but I wasn't there, you know. Oh, well, you know, Tower of Power was the appetizer, and then King Curtis had the Memphis Horns and Billy Preston. Billy Preston. You know, that, that was pretty awesome. Yep. And then, 
she comes out and just kills for 25 minutes. And then she Rachel... goes off, and it's like, wow. And, and then she comes back for Encore, and she's got fucking Ray Charles. Ray Charles. I mean, you know, it was like we've died and gone to heaven. Yeah. Wow. yeah. It comes across wow. on the recordings, too, even the ones that we got in England. Sometimes we never got pulled out. When, my, when What's Going On came out at first, my friend went to Washington, which was a big deal then to go to America. And when he came back, he had the fold out of what's going on. Because in England, it was just flat. Mm. There was no fold out with all the family, the collage and all that stuff and the, the lyrics inside. You know, that stuff was kind of gold dust then. You know, now it would be, people wouldn't think twice about we it. We felt the same way about British albums. Yes. There was, a, there was a store in San Francisco called Gramophone Records that imported British albums. Yep. And they were quite expensive. Yep. But... Okay. We would go over there, and that's where we could buy the Hendrix album before it came out in this country. That's where we could buy Sparks, uh, Rolling Stones albums that had different tracks yep. on them and were longer. Yep. And by the way, they were much nicer pressings, yep. a finer vinyl. And, Ni- nicer you know, covers, too, the thin, the uh, slick the covers. covers. Much nicer. Yep. The Rolling Stones' first album just was that beautiful picture of them, not yep. England's newest hit maker. And, 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 and the Rick... same way. And the Rick... And the record envelope had uh, plastic in it. Do you remember? Oh yeah, no, they were beautiful. And yeah. I'll, I'll tell you why, Elliot. As, as I understood this, because I went to LCC Secondary Moderns in 1961 and 62, so I know what it's like to be in England, uh-huh. and, and it's a working class country. And uh, the uh, to buy a record uh, was precious. Yeah. To buy an album was a deluxe moment. Right. And in mm-hmm. fact. They wouldn't put singles on the albums because the people had already bought the single. Right. In America, they used the single as a way to promote the album. So Painted Black was the first track on Aftermath. Yes. It's on the English Aftermath. Yes, yes, yes. So now it's a single. Yep. So when an English person went out and they were paying, what, uh, like two, Seven, three quid for these pieces. records, like ten bucks or something like that, and it was a huge part of their money i mean that was a big part of your yeah. income yeah. to invest in an album so it had to be a very nice product it had to be a 25 minutes it couldn't be 15 minutes and it had to be finely pressed and it had to have those little ridges on the uh record so that when they stacked up on top of each other the the grooves didn't touch right they were finely manufactured and the covers were beautiful with those those uh uh you know Shiny uh, cellophane uh, covers. No, the English records were much higher grade. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because I always thought it was a bit the opposite. I always thought that the Beatles albums, when you got them, were fucked up because they had all these. We never had that one with the, uh, you know, where they had all the babies parts on it, where they've got all the schmucks. Yeah, yesterday, yesterday. Little had a proprietary stereo system called i think electrono vision or something stupid like that duophonic that's what it's called it's really a stupid stereo system that didn't really have true stereo and george martin though he denied it at the end of his life he mixed those first two albums like an idiot you know he put the uh vocals, vocals. on one side yep. and the band tracks on yeah. the other yep. well it was very common to do that in stereo records in those days you know because the stereo yep. thrill had to be there mm-hmm. and nobody paid much attention to pop records for christ's sake he was busy, you know, mixing Bernard Cribbins and, and uh, the London Philharmonic. Right. So, uh, you know, he was just whacking these Beatles records out. Um, so, 
Yeah, the, the sound quality of Beatles, early Beatles records in America leaves a lot to be desired, but that the uh, early Beatles records in England are a little goofy, too. When they did the CD reissue, there's an interview with Billboard where George Martin claimed that he put out the CDs in mono because that's how they were originally recorded. Right, right. Well, you can buy all the Beatles albums in mono now, can't you? Doug? Yes. Yeah, and you can buy you can buy them uh, CDs in the duophonic because American listeners wondered what you know what are these CDs? They don't sound like I remember. Right. So they put out a set of the goddamn Beatles records in the horrible crappy stereo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Beatles stuff did sound a bit weird at first when it was remixed, didn't it? Did you find that? Well, you know, no, because I was familiar with the British pressings. Yeah. And that's pretty. That's that's largely what they were. Yeah, no, I, 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 you I, know, I'm not used to the to the American pressings. Oh, right. That's interesting because I remember when I bought, when I first saw a Santana 3 American one, it seemed like the card they used on the albums was much thicker. When they got to England, they the, the cardboard was thinner, slicker. And I bought the Louis Gasca for those who chant thing on Blue Thumb, and it was like fucking really thick, yeah. thick card. I thought, what's this? You know, I remember thinking that album was so way out when I first heard it. Now, it actually, is still quite a way out record, but. Oddly they, enough, those those cardboard album covers were cheaper than the ones they made in England. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. They were thicker though. They were really yeah, they're just cardboard, solid. just crappy cardboard. Yep. Just they seem deluxe to me, to use an American term. Um, anything? What are you listening to at the moment, Joel? Anything that's grabbed your uh, eardrums? I don't anything? think I've heard a new record I really, you know, liked uh, tremendously since Ry Cooter in 2005, Manu, uh, uh, Mambo Sinuendo. Yeah. Uh, but. Uh, you know, I'm not really uh, a, a sports writer anymore, so I don't want to rookies play baseball. You know, right? Okay, yeah. I'm not going to. Your mother's radio is listener funded. If you wish to assist and help keep the station active, funds can be sent via PayPal to Elliot. Is not your mother at gmail.com. Remember, there is only one L and one T in Elliot. Thank you for your assistance. It is appreciated. Only Wendy's serves a better breakfast with a better biscuit. Our hot buttery breakfast biscuits are loaded with a fresh cracked egg, cheese, and your choice of bacon or sausage. Did we mention the part where Wendy's biscuits are hot and buttery? Wendy's breakfast biscuits, hot and buttery. So don't take a chance with those other guys. Bet on a better breakfast with Wendy's bacon or sausage egg and cheese biscuit. Choose wisely. Choose Wendy's. At participating U.S. Wendy's during breakfast hours. Only Wendy's serves a better breakfast with a better biscuit. Our hot buttery breakfast biscuits are loaded with a fresh cracked egg, cheese, and your choice of bacon or sausage. Did we mention the part where Wendy's biscuits are hot and buttery? Wendy's breakfast biscuits, hot and buttery. So don't take a chance with those other guys. Bet on a better breakfast with Wendy's bacon or sausage egg and cheese biscuit. Choose wisely. Choose Wendy's. At participating U.S. Wendy's during breakfast hours. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Fly on the Wall. There are more great interviews to follow so please list us as one of your favorites and be sure to follow. We are listener funded. If you would like to assist our Venmo info is New Mexico DJ service. 
The PayPal info is New Mexico DJ service at gmail.com. Please remember to share our info. Thanking you all.